Please open up your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 35 through 51. I wonder if you've ever thought about how much of the blessings of this life are dependent upon our ability to see things that are right in front of our face. Our problem often is not so much that we can't see things, but that we won't see things. Um, when our children were little, I remember um, people would say to us, empty nesters in particular, would say to us things like, um, you know, soak it all up. Uh, it goes by so fast. In other words, they were saying to us, don't get lost, in, so lost in the business of life that you fail to see and to treasure them when they're little. How many parents are too busy to really see and enjoy the blessings that God has given to them? Uh, when you pull up to a red light and there are people spread out on the intersection taking up donations for a cause and you're not really interested in, in contributing to that cause, what do you do? Do you, do you look at them? You don't look at them. You, you look away. And when you're not interested, you don't see because you don't want to see. So do you understand how often we don't see what's there because we don't want to see what's there? For whatever reason, we don't want to see it. It's, it's one thing to miss out on the blessing of your children or even to miss out on the people taking up a, a collection at the intersection. But what if you fail to see the one and only person who can connect you to eternal life? Now, as you're looking at John chapter 1 and verses 35 to 51, this is a passage that's all about seeing. So far in chapter 1, John has introduced us to the Word made flesh and to the ministry of John the Baptist, who preaches the Word, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This passage that we're looking at this morning begins with John the Baptist bearing witness again, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. In both passages, John is exhorting us to behold, which is a command to see. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, will we see what John intends for us to see? And I would argue that John wants us to see at least two things from this passage. He wants us to behold the Lamb of God as Messiah, and he wants us to behold the Lamb as Son of God. So beholding the Lamb as, as Messiah in verses 35 to 42, and beholding the Lamb as Son of God in verses 43 to 51. So everybody look at beholding the Lamb as Messiah. Everybody look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I mentioned in my last message that there are probably two levels of meaning that John is calling attention to here. When he says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, there's the conquering warrior lamb meaning that appears in texts like Zechariah and the book of Revelation. And in that sense, Jesus takes away the sin of the world in the sense that he defeats his enemies, the sinners, and removes them. 
But no doubt the mention of a lamb would also have invoked the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. If not for John's hearers, certainly for John the Apostle and his readers, who by this time would have known all about Jesus' sacrificial death for sinners. In any case, John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And so the exhortation then, right off the bat, is to see him, to behold him for who he is, and don't miss it. Don't close your eyes, look upon him and see. And so the application is really obvious for all of us. Do what John says for us to do. Behold, don't become blinded by indifference or distraction. See Jesus, behold him. As the Apostle John reveals his glory to us in this text, see him. So John the Baptist says, behold, and look what happens next. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So they beheld him all right, and the proof was in the pudding. They not only saw him, but they stopped being John's disciples and immediately became Jesus' disciples by following him. So look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus knows that people can be seeking him for all kinds of reasons, all sorts of reasons, and they're they're not all good necessarily. So when Jesus probes them for what they are seeking, it's like he's asking them, what do you really want? What is it that you're looking for? If you really want Jesus, then you will be able to see him. If you don't really want him, you're not going to be able to see him at all. You'll just see a dirty, hungry Jewish peasant, but you won't really see with your eyes what is there. And so he says to them, what do you seek? Their answer to him is, is a little bit of a deflection. Instead of telling him what they're seeking, they address him as rabbi. What are you seeking? They say, rabbi. If it's in Aramaic, it literally means something like my great one. It, it was an honorific term that a disciple would use of his teacher. Do they really want Jesus to be their teacher? Are they willing to hear what he says and to see with the eyes of faith? It looks like they are because they say, where are you staying? which means they plan on going to wherever Jesus is going to be with him, to listen to him, and to follow him. Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now Jesus says, come and you will see. It's likely that Jesus is speaking on a whole different level or at least more than one level, than merely, okay, just come and look at where I'm living at. Jesus is using the language of coming to him as a synonym for believing in him. So you'll remember in John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up 
at the last day. Likewise, Jesus is using this language of coming and seeing with reference to the light of his own revelation to his people. John 14, 9 says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus says, come and see. And the coming and the seeing is like a call to believe, I would argue. And so it says in verse 39, so they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, on our reckoning, the 10th hour would be about 4 p.m. So it looks like they stayed the rest of the day with him, listening and learning. But what did they see during this time? Remember, this passage is all about seeing. What did they see? What did they figure out? Well, look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Hold on a minute. Jesus said, come and see. They came and saw, but they discovered in relatively short order that this guy isn't just some rabbi. This is the Messiah himself. Andrew isn't telling Peter to come check out the rabbi. He's telling his brother Peter that Messiah is on the scene. He's there. He's arrived. You'll all remember that Messiah is a title. It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. You'll remember that when Saul was to become king of Israel, Samuel anointed him with oil. David repeatedly called Saul the, the Lord's anointed. When David was to become king, Samuel comes and he anoints David with oil. And so thereby David would become the Lord's anointed. So the Lord's Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah, in the Greek translation of that is Christos. So Christ, that's just a title for the king, the Jewish king. And so to call someone, for them to call Jesus Messiah was for them to say, this is the king the long-awaited king, the son of David who has come to save God's people. And now he's proclaiming, Andrew is proclaiming this to his brother, Simon. He's saying, we found the Messiah. So look at verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here's the scene. Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus, and Jesus gets right down to business. He says, I know you. You're John's boy, basically. Your name's Simon. You're going to have a different name now. Your name is Cephas. This is really bold on Jesus' part. I mean, really? You just walk up to a guy you've never met before? You just rename him on the spot? Yeah. It's exactly what Jesus does. You may think, well, that sounds kind of like an alpha thing to do. No, it's more like an alpha and omega thing to do. It's an absolute assertion of authority to rename him on the spot like this. But it's also another thing. It's a declaration of God's calling on Peter's life. Jesus not only has authority to rename him, but he also has the authority to bring 
Peter to fulfill the meaning of that new name. We know this. You remember from Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus calls Peter, Peter means what? It means the rock, right? He intends for Peter to be the foundation in some sense. So he wants him to be the foundation of the church. Peter's later confession of Christ would be given to him by direct revelation from the Father. Peter and the other apostles would be revelators, laying down the foundation of revealed truth for the church. And upon this rock, God indeed builds his church so that Paul can say many years later that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians 2.20. But Jesus just renames him right off the bat. Absolute assertion of authority, absolutely an intention of what his calling on Peter's life is all about. And what if I stood out here at the glass doors one day, greeting everybody one Sunday morning as they come in, and every time a visitor introduces himself, I say, you know, I know what your name is, I know what family you're from, but from now on, you're Rockford. That's your name. We're going to call you Rockford. Next person. Now, how would that go over? Your parents name you. When you come of age, you could rename yourself if you want. But what kind of a person unilaterally cancels somebody's name and then just gives them another name? Well, the kind of person that does that is an all-powerful, victorious, and conquering king. That's who does that. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one else knows but he who receives it. This says, Jesus not only gives you know, Peter a new name, this says to all those who overcome, to all those believers who persevere until the end, Jesus gives them a new name. One commentator, Leon Morris, says it this way, With us, a name is no more than a distinguishing mark, a label. But in antiquity, the name was widely held to sum up what the man stood for. It represented his character. It stood for the whole man. Here then, the new name represents a new character. So yes, this is sheer sovereign authority when Jesus is renaming. If you're going to see Jesus in Andrew as Simon saw Jesus, you're going to have to embrace him as Messiah and Lord. You're going to have to embrace that authority and submit to that authority. The Messiah is the king. That means that he rules. He will brook no rivals. You follow him all the way or you don't follow him at all. To recognize him as king means that you recognize that you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. You serve at the pleasure of his will on the basis of his grace. It's his absolute sovereign right to rule everything, including your life. But this is more than just authority to call someone by a certain name. It's authority to transform a person's identity into conformity with that name. And that's not just true for Peter. That's true for every single one of us that bear the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. By no means 
Let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Not by those, those names. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. You have a new name. You are a Christian, which means you are a little Christ. That name indicates God's calling on your life, that you are to live at all times in such a way as to glorify Christ. That all of your life would be ordered to be put on display in all that you say and do to glorify him, to demonstrate that he is the Messiah and the king of your life. So to behold the lamb as the Messiah means that you are beholding a king to whom you are beholden in everything. So beholding the lamb as Messiah. But look secondly at beholding the lamb as son of God. Everybody look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now notice that Jesus found Philip, not that Philip found Jesus. I would suggest that it's actually Jesus who found all four of these characters that we see in this narrative. So we're going to see Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel. Jesus is finding really all four of them, even though Andrew and Philip in verses 41 and 45, they both say they found the Messiah. It's really Jesus that found them. You know, John chapter 15, verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He's telling this to his disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you. You should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. In describing your own conversion, it is totally appropriate for you to tell people that you found Jesus. It's just that when you do that, you have to come to terms with the fact that he found you before you found him. He chose you before you chose him. Your calling and conversion are a direct result of his sovereign initiative in your life. You have nothing to boast about because of that. So verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth son of Joseph. So Andrew proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. Now Philip is proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which is virtually the same thing as calling him Messiah. But notice what Nathaniel picks up on. Philip's saying this is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, but Nathaniel picks up on the fact, not that it's the fulfillment of scripture, but that Jesus is coming from Nazareth. He's got a little bit of a problem with that. He says in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, many people viewed Nazareth as a backwater. Uh, for whatever reason, Nathanael has a very dim view of Nazareth and the people who come from Nazareth. And so he asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's, it's a foregone conclusion. As far as he's concerned, nothing can good, good can come out of Nazareth. Obviously, Nathaniel here is making a, a negative judgment about Philip's news. Nathaniel's making a mistake about Jesus. 
And he's making that mistake based on where Jesus is from. The question here that I want you to think about for a minute is what's the nature of Nathaniel's mistake? Is he expressing a kind of sinful prejudice in saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or is he making just what would be just like a benign judgment, like a probability judgment? Now, we all have to make probability judgments. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with making those kinds of judgments. You know, last week, one of my children said to me, they were looking outside and they said, why is it so dark out there right now? It's you know, early in the day. It's so dark outside. And I said, well, looks like it's going to rain. What am I doing? I'm making a judgment. I'm making a judgment, drawing inferences from my past experiences about what it means if you see dark skies. Could I be mistaken? I could be mistaken about it, right? But even if I were, it would be a mistake. It would not be a sinful prejudice, right? Um, I made made a judgment. It's a rational judgment, not not prejudice per se. If I'm driving down the road and I press the gas pedal and the engine revs up, but the car doesn't accelerate, I'm going to make a probability judgment based on my previous experience that my transmission is probably messed up. I could be wrong. It might not be that. But even if I were wrong, it would be a mistake. It would not be a sin. My judgment is rational, even if it turns out to be mistaken in that sense. Is that what's going on here with Nathaniel? When he says nothing good can come out of Nazareth. If Nathaniel knows his Bible, he knows that the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. Messiah comes from Bethlehem in Judah, the city of David. So isn't he making a rational judgment when he says, you know, he's essentially just telling Philip, you know, messiahs don't come from Nazareth. Therefore, you're wrong about Jesus, Philip. Isn't that that what's going on here? Is this just a mistake? Or is it possible in this case that there could be something more involved, some kind of a prejudice involved? Well, notice that Nathaniel actually doesn't say can messiahs come out of Nazareth? That's not what he says. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he, he's gone past merely a question about prophetic expectation to a prejudiced denunciation of what's possible even out of Nazareth. So for whatever reason, in this sense, there seems to be more going on here than a mere mistake. It's a prejudice that keeps him from considering the possibility that maybe a man could be born in one place and be raised in another, which would be the case with, with Jesus. Um, John Piper, in his uh, message on this text, he says it this way. He says, Nathaniel has moved from legitimate probability judgments to sinful prejudice. His view of these people is so negative that he sweeps all of them into the stereotype, including Jesus. His reaction is immediate. He does not consider the possibility that Philip might know what he's talking about. He is temporarily blinded by prejudice, end quote. Well, notice here, Philip doesn't argue with him. What does Philip say? He says, come and see. Come and see, Nathaniel. Let's see if your prejudice against Nazarenes can survive a confrontation with this Nazarene. You come and see. So verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, there it is again, 
Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Some of your translations say, Behold, an Israelite in whom, in whom there is no guile. That's, a, that's quite a statement from Jesus, isn't it? He sees Nathaniel. He says, this guy's without deceit. Really? Does this really mean that Nathaniel is free from all lying and deceit? Doesn't think anything untrue? Doesn't say anything untrue? Is, is Jesus meaning to give a clean bill of health on telling the truth at all times? That's, that's what Nathaniel is? I, I don't think that's what Jesus means here. What, what does he mean? I think Jesus is commending Nathaniel's forthrightness that you see ex exemplified in the previous verse. If there's one thing, think, remember this about Jesus. If there was one thing that Jesus seemed to not be able to tolerate, it was hypocrisy. You remember in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, chief priests, scribes, the elders, they asked Jesus where his authority comes from. Remember that? Where does your authority come from, Jesus? Jesus says he'll answer their question if they answer him a question. Okay, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? So all these you know, chief priests, scribes, and the elders, they get together, they have a little conference, and they decide, well, if we say from heaven, then they'll say, well, you, you should believe in him because you know, John said to believe in Jesus. But if we say it's from men, well, the people, they like John. They hold him to be a prophet. We can't say that John's baptism is from men. So they decide, well, we'll just tell them we don't know. So what's happening there? They're saying one thing with their mouths, but they're concealing what's truly going on in their hearts. They're hypocrites. That's what's going on there. And Jesus says, neither am I going to tell you by what authority. I do. He doesn't even deal with these people who are hypocrites. They say one thing, but they're meaning another thing. So here you have Jesus with Nathaniel. Nathaniel hears this report from Philip and just says exactly what's on his mind. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says, well, yeah, I can work with that. <laughs> no guile, no deceit about what he's really thinking. What you see is what you get. That's, that's what Nathaniel... Now, is Nathaniel wrong? Nathaniel's wrong. He's totally wrong about who Jesus is. But you know what he's thinking. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus is wondering how, okay, Jesus is claiming to know something very deep and personal about it. This is a man in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel's like, how do you know this? He's responding like any stranger saying such a thing. What, what do you know about me? And Jesus says something absolutely extraordinary. He claims knowledge of Nathaniel that could only come about through supernatural means. He claims to have seen Nathaniel before he actually saw him, which implies some other supernatural mode of seeing on Jesus' part. This is no fly-by-night Messiah here today, gone tomorrow. This, this one's different from the other ones who've made that claim. He knows Nathaniel inside and out. He knows Nathaniel, what's in his heart. He's, there's no guile. He knows Nathaniel on the outside. He knows where he was before he saw him. He knows everything about Nathaniel. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That was quick, wasn't it? He went from nothing good comes out of Nazareth to you're the Messiah. Right there. 
His prejudice couldn't survive more than a minute or so with an actual confrontation with Jesus. And so he reaches for another probability judgment. Who can know me inside and out like this? Uh, one person, the Messiah. You're the son of God. He calls him son of God, king of Israel. Now, it's probably not the case that Nathaniel understood all the Trinitarian implications of calling Jesus the son of God. Trinitarian implications that you and I would see, for example. Probably Nathaniel didn't perceive all of that. Most likely, Nathaniel's exclamation refers to the Old Testament's language about the identity of the Messiah. You remember back in uh, 2 Samuel in chapter 7, when God was making the Davidic covenant, how did God speak to David? He said, David said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house, and I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. You've got a son coming, David. This son will have a kingdom that goes forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Get it? Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. We give example after example of this in the Old Testament, where the coming Messiah would be the son of God. So to speak of Jesus as the son of God is to recognize that the Old Testament says that he's the Messiah and that the Old Testament Messiah will be God's offspring in a sense. It was primarily a messianic title when Nathaniel, I think, said it. Having said that, it's also clear that Jesus taught his disciples that it means more than that. Even if they thought Son of God was mainly a messianic title, Jesus teaches them that it's more than that. And he teaches them to see, to see that the, the Trinitarian realities of this expression by identifying himself over and over with God. He says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, John 8, 59, before Abraham was born, I am taking the divine name to himself. So yes, John the gospel writer means more than Nathaniel knows when he first confesses Jesus as the son of God, most likely. So look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So Philip said, come and see. And now, now Nathaniel has seen enough. Nevertheless, Jesus says, we're just getting started with this seeing. You're going to see far more of my glory than that little glimpse I've given you right here. So he explains it. Look at verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, unless you are familiar with your Old Testament, Jesus' words are going to sound a little bizarre here. This mysterious figure stretching from heaven to earth Angels are going up and down on this figure, back and forth from heaven to earth and back again. What is this? Who is this son of man? 
Well, this title, Son of Man, is one you're going to have to get used to. It turns out Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself throughout the Gospels. So it's not just John's Gospel. You see it in the other Gospels as well. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his, give his life as a ransom for many. Or Mark chapter 2, verse 10. But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise and take up your pallet and go home. Who's the Son of Man coming to, not to be served, but to serve? And the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. He's talking about himself, right? John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So what does Jesus mean by this expression? Well, it's clear that he means it to refer to himself, but what does it mean to say that he's the son of man? That phrase appears uh, over and over in the Old Testament to denote a human being. So to be like the uh, son of man is like that song in, uh, you remember the Disney movie Tarzan, son of man, right? You've got all the apes and you've got the one guy who's the son of man, right? He's a person. Son of, that's how son of man is used throughout the Old Testament. It refers to people. You're a son of a man, you're a man, you're a human being. And I think Jesus' hearers would have heard that, that it's a reference to him being a human being. But actually, Jesus means more than that. And the reason we know that is because of the connection to Daniel chapter 7. I think his hearers heard more than that when they heard son of man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, you remember this? I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's possible that some people heard Son of Man and took it to be a mere reference to his humanity, but that's not the only thing that Jesus meant by it, whether any particular person recognized it or not. How do we know that? Because when the high priest later interrogated Jesus... Before the crucifixion, he asked Jesus straight up, tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you know how Jesus replied? Jesus says, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Jesus absolutely, without ambiguity, saying, I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I'm the son of man from Daniel's vision. I dwelled in heaven in the presence of the ancient of days, and the ancient of days gave me an everlasting dominion and kingdom that will never end. I am the great and heavenly king from Daniel 7. It's me. That's what this means. So son of man refers to Jesus' humanity, sure, but it also means more than that. It's without question a messianic title for Jesus. So what then does it mean when he says that the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Jesus is alluding to what Clint read just a moment ago from Genesis chapter 28 in verses 10 through 17. You remember the story, don't you? 
You remember the story. Jacob had deceived his brother and his father in order to steal his brother's inheritance. His brother becomes murderously angry. So Jacob essentially has to go into exile for a number of years. And as Jacob is fleeing his brother's wrath, he falls asleep in the wilderness. He has a dream. And in that dream, he sees what? He sees a ladder, a ladder set on the earth with its top reaching all the way to heaven. And he witnesses angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And then God speaks to him and reaffirms God's promises to Abraham, to Jacob. And he says, in you and in your offspring, in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. And then Jacob wakes up and you remember what Jacob says. Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God and the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven. That's the place where you go to heaven, right? That's the entry point into heaven. This is the house of God. And you remember, he named the place Bethel, house, Beit El, house of God. This is where God and man meet. So Jacob bears witness to a ladder that connects heaven to earth. The only connection between heaven and earth to this place where God dwells is at this ladder. And then God tells Jacob that he's going to bless all the families of the earth through his offspring. And then you fast forward 2,000 years to the time of Jesus saying this. Jacob's offspring, Jesus, is there. He's finally arrived and he's telling Nathaniel, the son of man is Jacob's ladder. I'm the sole connection between heaven and earth. All of the transport between heaven and earth is going to happen across me. I'm the connection. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, Nathaniel, you are going to see greater things than anything you have seen up until this point. You think it was something that I told you I could see you under the tree earlier? There's infinitely more of the glory of Christ yet for you to see. You're going to see the Son of Man lifted up from the earth onto a cross. You are going to see him buried and then you are going to see him raised back to life and you are going to see him ascended into heaven and then you're going to see the nations streaming to him and you are going to see the path to heaven blazed by Jesus himself and others following him. Rest assured, Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. You are going to see the Son of Man and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So the application here is really simple. It's come and see. It's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb who died on a Roman cross and took the penalty that we deserved so that we could be forgiven. Behold the Lamb who is risen from the dead and who has ascended to the Father and who says to everyone, Come unto me, all ye that labor and I will give you rest. Come and see Jesus, which means believe in him. Come see if your prejudices against him will stand in the face of his reality. 
Come and see the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. That's the message here. There is one way. There is one door of the sheep. There is one connection between heaven and earth, and it's Jesus. Andrew and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel, against prejudices, saw it. And the question is, will we see it? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would open blind eyes and deaf ears and you would enable people to see the gospel and to believe. And that against prejudices, they would believe in Christ and be saved. Father, do that work in people who don't know you who are in this room right now. Help them to see that what they need more than anything is King Jesus. Help them to see and to believe. Father, I pray that for those of us who know you, we would realize that we have barely seen anything yet. It has hardly entered the mind of man what you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, would we be transfixed upon the vision of our Savior and be transformed by that vision into his very own image. Lord, help us all to see to behold the Lamb, to believe, to be saved, and to be transformed into that very image. Father, do your perfect work. Father, we do lift up Mary to you again. We are so thankful to see her walk out of here. Pray that you would bless her and heal her. Bring her back to health. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us through Christ, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.